0: he's the source of it. All of the Bible is God's truth, but not everything that is specifically true is found in the Bible, and not everything found in the Bible is equally uh, transformational or life-changing for us. I'll give you an example. Exodus 23, 19, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Now, I confess to you, it's been a long time since I've been tempted to boil a young goat in its mother's milk. But listen, I don't live in ancient Israel, and and this had meaning for them. They understood what God was requiring, what God was prohibiting. And maybe it had meaning for them and truth for them and their culture. But whatever is true about that verse, it hasn't had a huge transformational impact on my life. However, the truth before us this morning, if we live by it, without a doubt, will transform every day of our lives. Beyond that, it will transform almost every moment of every day of our lives, particularly in the hopes that we have and the decisions we make. And I'm not overstating that case. And for that reason, This is one of my favorite passages to preach. And because of the situation in which we now find ourselves, as we began to reemerge from a, a pandemic, and because of the condition in which we find our country right now, I believe this moment, this day, this Sunday, is the moment to preach this truth. And I pray that this truth, though it's very familiar to you, will encourage you and transform you in a way that perhaps it never has before. And here's the truth. Are you ready for it? Are you ready for it? Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. As we come to Zechariah chapter 4. If you have your Bible with you, we've taken the pews out of the Bible. Terrible thing for a church to say, but nevertheless, we've done that. If you have your Bible, it's on your phone. Turn there or you'll find the passage printed in the bulletin for you. So once you've found that in your Bible, or the bulletin, I'm going to ask you to stand as we here read together the truth, the truth of the word of the living God. Zechariah chapter 4, this is the word of the Lord. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who has wakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? And I said, I see, and behold, a lampstand, all of gold, with a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl, the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain. And he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord which ranged through the whole earth. Then I said to him, what are these two olive trees on the right and on the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, what are these two branches of the olive trees which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? He said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. And let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is truth. We pray now that through the power of your spirit, you would teach us your truth. And beyond teaching, Lord, we pray that you would use that truth to transform our lives, to change us into people who go through our lives, who hope, who dream, who do, not by might nor by power, but by your spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Last Sunday, we looked at Psalm 126, and that's a song that God's people sang as they made their way back to Jerusalem after their many, many years of exile. The captives are going home, and they are full of joy. This morning is like a homecoming. For us, isn't it? We're, we're back together again. And I certainly don't want to minimize what it meant for ancient Israel to be captives and to live in captivity by comparing it to what we've experienced. But nevertheless, a lockdown is a lockdown. And we were, in a sense, held captive even if it was uh, captivity within our own homes. And so we get just a taste of what it was like. We experienced curfews for many days. Get home. Get off the streets by 6 o'clock. We had to remember what this was like. What worship is like. Because we didn't do it as we had done it before for 6 months. And so the exiles in their day, and you and I during the course of this last week have had anticipatory joy at the thought of coming home. The exiles might have been so joyful because they remembered what Jerusalem was like and they thought they were going back to that. It kind of reminds me of the country song. But then what in life doesn't remind us of a country song, right? It's good to touch the green, green grass of home. Translation, it's good To touch the green, green grass of home. That's how we feel. Well, it's not so good if home isn't home anymore. And it's not so good if the grass isn't as green anymore. And that's the reality. That these joyful people discovered when they finally made their way home. Jerusalem wasn't Jerusalem anymore. It was completely destroyed, burned. Its walls broken down. The beautiful ornate, gold-covered, jewel-encrusted temple that was one of the wonders of the ancient world. It's nothing but a pile, a heap of ruin. And so the exiles have a new reality when they return home. And the new reality for them is that they must rebuild. That's their reality. And because of the the devastation upon which they're looking, probably their gut reactions. no, we can't, we can't, we, we just can't do it. It's too much. The task is too great. And that's understandable. That's a very human reaction. And that's why people who are called to rebuild, as these people are, they need good news because rebuilding can be frustrating. Rebuilding can be difficult. Rebuilding can make you want to give up uh, in hopeless despair. And so here is the good news. Here is the hope for these rebuilders. And it comes to these people through the prophet Zechariah. God gives Zechariah, his prophet, a vision. And he gives him a message, and it's intended for Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, follow, if you will, is the governor of these people. Uh, The political, the civic leader, he would have been their king if it hadn't been for uh, the the, the captivity, because he was uh, of the line of David. He would be their king, but he's their governor, and he's now in charge of this uh, temple, rebuilding it. What's it going to be? What's it going to look like? Zerubbabel probably has very many questions as he looks on it. Where am I going to get stones big enough to rebuild it? How much manpower do I have to complete this project? How much money is there? How much this? How much that? Who this? Who that? All these questions are questions that Zerubbabel has. But listen, because here's the hope and here's the good news. Before Zerubbabel even begins, to rebuild, God gives him this message, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And the Lord uses two different words, though they're related, to emphasize his message, might and power. These words include everything that you and I have to offer as human beings, our physical strength, our mental strength, our material resources, All of that is included in might and power. And God is emphasizing here that that is not how this temple will be rebuilt. How will it be rebuilt? By the Spirit of God. So let's talk now about these three elements that we we find in this vision. The lampstand, the two trees, and the oil. Because in these elements, God pictures hope for us. The first is the lampstand. Look in verse 2. You'll find it described there. Uh, it's a golden stand, and on top of the stand is a bowl, and on top of the bowl, there are seven lights. Now, if we were to stop right here, we would have before us what we would recognize as just a, a regular menorah, something we see especially during the season of, of Hanukkah, a lampstand with seven lights on it. However, this stand is different. It's not normal stand or normal light because each of the seven Lamps has seven lips or wicks or spouts. And so each of the seven lights has seven lights. In Scripture, the number seven is the number of completion or perfection. So here we have seven times seven. I'll let you take it from there. Verse 10 describes more uh, uh, of the light. So so God is saying you don't just have normal light, you have a super abundance uh, of light. And then verse 10 gives more meaning to the seven lights. It says, they are the eyes of the Lord which range through the whole earth. And so a super abundance of light allows a super abundance of God's watchfulness. God sees everything. Nothing is hidden in the darkness. Nothing of their thoughts, their hearts, their fears, their frustrations. God sees it all. Every detail required for completing this temple, including the number of stones. God sees it all. God knows it all. He's always watching over his people. Is that good news? Now let's look at the next element of the vision. It's the two olive trees. We see those described in verse 3. It says one olive tree is on the right of the stand, one olive tree is on the left of the stand. Now let's move on to the last element, the oil. Oil is what feeds the lamp and keeps it going. Verse 12 brings the picture together for us. The branches of the trees constantly drip oil into the golden pipes that feed the candles so that the light keeps burning and the light never goes out. Now in Scripture, oil, over and over, it's a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And so, these people have an abundance of the Spirit of God, a never-ending supply. Now, as we look at this picture, there's a missing element. What element is missing? The human element. There's no human hand seen in this vision that the Lord gives to Zechariah. And that's because God's message of hope, and that's what we're looking at. God's message of hope is not by human might, not by human power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Now look in verse 7. By the power of the Lord, the mountain... Before Zerubbabel, literally this mountain of debris. The Lord, by his power, is going to remove that. The Lord, by his power, is going to remove any mountain that stands in the way of accomplishing his purpose. Whether that be a political mountain, and they certainly encounter some of those, financial mountains, spiritual mountains, spiritual lethargy of the people. And so God's word of hope to people who must roll up their sleeves and rebuild, is that God will accomplish his work by his power. Now let's skip to the end. After Zechariah has seen the vision, after Zechariah has delivered the message, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord, after God has established his power and his plan, Then we see the human hand. Look in verse 13, the very last verse, and we read about two anointed ones. These two anointed ones could be Zerubbabel, the governor, and Joshua, the high priest. Or maybe these two are the prophets of the Lord, Zechariah and Haggai. But here's the point. They are human beings, human beings in the hand of God, human beings empowered by the Spirit of God, To do the rebuilding work of God, not by might, nor by power, but by the Spirit of the Lord. You know, as we attempt to reemerge as people, as we attempt to reemerge as a church after COVID, I feel like we have a lot of rebuilding work to do. Maybe home isn't how we remembered it and maybe the grass isn't as green as it once was we know that many lives need to be rebuilt families need to be rebuilt emotionally physically spiritually businesses rebuilt jobs rebuilt you know the story but we've got to rebuild in the the light of this new reality our country, the country in which God has placed us, our city, the city in which God has placed us, it's not the same place as it was when last we worshiped together as a whole church family back in March. The, the pandemic has changed us protests, riots, destruction, whether you believe they're justified or not, they've changed us. Whether you believe they've accomplished good, or accomplished ill, they've changed us. And it feels like to us that we have exchanged a world that was somewhat stable when last we were together for one that is about to totter over. Powerful messages are going out about humanity, and these messages to me seem to be snowballing and picking up momentum exponentially as they roll along. Lessons about life, its value. Who's valuable? Who's not valuable? Message about the source of life, and who should determine what life should be, and if life should be, and if life should be, be, what should it look like? Messages about truth. Messages about absolutes. What is absolute? If everything can be altered... Or if everything can be torn down and people are getting those messages. This article appeared in the Christian Post this week. And it gives results of a a study that began in January of 2020. It says this, although 61% of American millennials, those are people ages 18 through 36, consider themselves to be Christian, just 2% of them were found to hold a biblical worldview. And a biblical worldview is defined as believing that absolute moral truths exist, that such truth is defined by the Bible. It's the belief that Jesus Christ lived a sinless life, That God is all-powerful and all-knowing, creator of the universe, and that he still rules today. That salvation is a gift from God and cannot be earned. That Satan is real and the Bible is accurate in all its teachings. That's a biblical worldview. And while millennials were shown to have the most radical shift away from the Bible, older generations didn't fare much better. Uh, The elder generation, 75 and older, uh, 9% of them had a biblical worldview. The baby boomers, 56 to 74. Um, where's the, 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 the percentage for them? It's here. I think it's seven. Then we go to generation X, and the percentage stop, uh, drops to five. 5% holding a biblical worldview. George Barna, he's the director of research at the Cultural Research Center. You know, not, not everybody think, thinks fondly of George Barna, but he said this on Tuesday. These profiles are profoundly disturbing. The significantly divergent worldview perspectives and applications of these four generations, especially how different the millennials are from all their predecessors, suggests a nation that is at war with itself to adopt new values, lifestyles, and a new identity. In other words, there is a war for worldview dominance. But as scripture reminds us, a nation at war with itself cannot persist. So if we're at war, war brings destruction. And after destruction, there has to be rebuilding. I want to read a little bit more of the article. Compared to other groups of adults, millennials are significantly less likely to believe in the existence of absolute moral truth or that God is the basis of all truth, to believe that human beings were created by God in His image, that He loves them unconditionally. They're less likely to pray and worship regularly or to seek God's will for their lives. Also, they are significantly more likely to wonder if God is really involved in their life to believe that human life has no absolute value and to believe that having faith matters more than what faith they have. I think of the mountain that faced Zerubbabel. And then I think of this mounting mountain of unbelief that faces us, that faces the church. And you know what my gut reaction is? I want to give up. Do you ever want to give up? I want to say it's too late. God has been canceled. Truth has been canceled. And these two are never going to make a comeback. But then, I remember God's message. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Does that give you hope? And then I remember the eyes of the Lord is the Lord watching always watching always seeing the Lord knows exactly when he has been excluded where he has been excluded and why he has been excluded and then in the midst of it all here is the church God's church always the church forever the church forever God's people forever indwelled and empowered by the spirit people. Never will the gates of hell prevail against us people. What part of the rebuilding does God have for us right now? What are his expectations for us as a church? You know, while the rebuilding project was going on in ancient Israel, There were some who despised it. That's what it says in verse 10. That means they had contempt for it. It means they could have done this. Spit on it. Because this temple did not match their expectations. It didn't look like they thought it should look. It didn't look like what they hoped it would look like. But God said of that rebuilt temple, the glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house. You know why? Because Jesus, God the Son, God the flesh, is going to stand in the midst of that temple and he exceeds every expectation that we could ever have. Every hope that we could ever have is exceeded in the person of Christ. They just didn't know it. They couldn't see it. And so they despised the rebuilding work of the Lord. It did not meet their expectations. So, what about us? What's our rebuilding work? What are our expectations? Sometimes I look now at what not just we as a church, but the church in general valued as important just six months ago, and I look at some of those things, and they almost seem silly now in this new world that we actually thought those things were important. What are our expectations? You know, maybe we're expecting thousands. And maybe what God is expecting is one, one faithful disciple, one faithful follower of Christ. And so maybe now it's time for us to rebuild. Maybe it's time for us to rebuild the church. Maybe it's time for us just to be figuring out what it means to be a disciple of Christ. Maybe we need to think anew and afresh of what it means to make disciples of Christ, those who faithfully follow him. Maybe that's where our energies and our strengths could go, should go as a church. Maybe it's time to rebuild ourselves as well. Maybe it's time for you and for me to start seeing ourselves as exiles. That's how Scripture describes people of faith who made their way through this world and to the next. They saw themselves as exiled. And listen, exiles are not entitled people. Exiles are stripped of everything. Exiles have had everything taken away from them. And maybe that's what the Lord is doing in his church right now. Maybe he's, he's stripping us. Maybe he's taking away the privilege that we feel that we've always had. You know the story of the family that moves to town and they pick the best and the largest church because it will promote their business and make social contacts for them because that's the way the church in America has been viewed. It's a place for our gain. It's a place to gain privilege. And maybe we've thought of the church that way too often. And so maybe it's time for us to consider ourselves as not people of privilege. Privilege, yes, to be called by God, but in this world as exiles, as people who are willing to set aside our privilege, to let go of our privilege, and to live in dependence on Christ who provides for his exiled people. I think the most disturbing Thing to me in the article I read and all the statistics was a comment that was made in the section below the article by a guy named Todd. And Todd wrote, Doesn't biblical worldview merely mean fundamentalist, evangelical, Protestant? In my lifetime, these people by far have had the ugliest souls. So, yeah. Now we can react to that. Well, well, I never. We can dismiss it. Ah, it's not true. Or we can ask, is it maybe just a little true? How have we used God's truth in our lives? How have we applied God's truth to others? Have we used truth as a bat to swing or a hammer to crush? Or have we remembered that truth is a person to embrace? Jesus says, I am the truth. So when you embrace truth, You embrace the person of Christ. And I guarantee this, when we embrace Christ, when we stay closely connected to him, I guarantee you that no one will say that your soul is ugly. They might not agree with you. They might not believe what you say, but they will not see ugly on your face and they will not see ugly in your heart. Not if you and I are staying closely connected to Christ. When we're talking about truth, Jesus has to be the center of it. When we're sharing truth, Jesus has to be the center of it. If you are a person of truth, then you are a person of Christ. Not just a person of propositions or commandments or judgments or condemnations. You are a person of Christ and Christ must be your center. Christ must be your reason for being and mine as well. And I mean that seriously Christ must be the center of everything, the center of our relationships, the center of our marriages, our homes, our families, our finances, our jobs, our free time, our uh, recreations. Christ has to be the center of those. Many people say, Craig, you're being extreme. I say, I'm being a disciple because that's what disciples do. They make Christ the center of everything. A disciple realizes that that will become their reality, not by might, nor by power, but by the work of the Spirit of God. The heart of the disciple is to rebuild what was torn down, torn down by sin, torn down by Satan. The heart of the disciple is to rebuild it for the sake of Christ, by the power of Christ. The heart of the disciple is to see the glory of God restored, restored in the lives of others for the sake of Christ and by the power of Christ. I call on us this morning, people of God, to be people who rebuild. Let's be people who rebuild. Let's be people who rebuild. And let's not be daunted. Let's not be discouraged by the mountain in front of us. Let's not be frustrated by what we think we don't have or can't do. Because Jesus has gifted us with his spirit. Let's not give up. Let's not despise small things. Let's keep building, rebuilding, proclaiming Jesus, the glorious gospel, not by might. Nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, we thank you for the truth of it. Thank you for the privilege that we can be in this place today and still proclaim you are truth and your word is truth and your truth is absolute because you are the source of it. Lord, may we keep proclaiming you as truth. Not by might nor by power, but by your spirit, Lord, give us the strength, the desire, the hope, the courage to proclaim your truth. Father, we pray that you would uh, stir up our hearts to be Rebuilders, Lord, our, our our lives need to be built. The lives of people around us need to be built. Our world is so changed; it's constantly changing. Lord, uh, we know it, we see it. We don't need Barna to tell us that our culture is at war with itself. All we have to do is turn on the news, and we see the battle raging, and we see the casualties—people laying to the right and to the left, slain. One side slaying the other. It's everywhere. It's ugly. It's war. It's devastation, Lord. But we're your people. We're your church. You've placed us in the midst of it and you've given us the power of your spirit so that we can rebuild, so that we can give hope, so that we can give the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Through that, Lord, people's lives are rebuilt. And so, Lord, make us rebuilders, we pray. Lord, help us seek you for your will, for your desire, for your expectations of us as individuals, but uh, uh, as a church, as Redeemer, Presbyterian Church, what is it that you would have us do? Lord, may our expectations line up with yours. May we never despise the good work uh, that you are doing. But, Lord, be in step with you, be in step with your spirit. Lord, we want to do this uh, for your good, for your glory, but, Lord, because we know it's for the good of the people that you have created in your image all around us the hope that we have to offer, the good news of the gospel that we bring to them. Lord, may we do it not by might nor by power, but by your spirit we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.